Hi, Gregoire. How are you doing? I'm pretty well, thank you. And you? I'm okay. Thank you. What are we going to talk about today? Wait, we were supposed to talk about... to have a discussion on how to keep psychoanalysis alive. That's how we started, but then you decided... No, I you, decided... You, no, you I didn't decided... <laughs> no, in... <laughs> no, you did not decide this. We both ca got caught in a different... Subject. Well, we realized that as scholar as we are, uh, oh. we needed to define the terms of the <laughs> problematic of the subject. So, so, so we spent an hour. <laughs> we went on a tangent, and then we, on the second uh, recording, we realized that we didn't answer, we had not answered the questions. Yeah, no. So you are going to hear us talk at the beginning of the podcast that. It is going to be on how to keep psychoanalysis alive. It is not. It is going <laughs> to be about what is it? Mm -hmm. What is psychoanalysis? And at some points we discuss why. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why we want to keep it alive. But mm -hmm. then we go back to, we go what, back to the, 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 the nature of psychoanalysis. And yeah. um, well, this is, uh, of course, a much too big question for us to really dig into as sufficiently as it should but there are some food for thoughts oh yeah yeah so we are trying to talk about a bit what we are trying to keep alive uh, we are trying to define psychoanalysis as a movement or and a state of mind we're going to try to talk about whether or not we can work with everybody the question of frequency how institutes wait in that question of what is psychoanalysis We are going to address the question of frequency as a matter of changing or not the nature of our work. Yes. And finally, we are going to go back to the question of maybe what is not psychoanalysis. Because mm -hmm. I found at least that defining psychoanalysis is difficult. So we try to take it from a different angle. Yeah. Going for the negative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so if you want to write to us, please do so directly to discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. You can find us on Facebook, uh, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And uh, we're happy to restart uh, releasing some podcasts. Thank you for listening. My name is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Francisco Danielson. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis alive. You have 45 minutes. <laughs>
<laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Well, it seems that you have the desire to keep it alive to begin with. Oh. But that's a different question. To keep it alive, you would need desire to keep it alive. <laughs> to keep it alive. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. that's true. Yeah. A question that you raised while we were preparing. Which was? <laughs> <laughs> you keep doing this. I don't remember. <laughs> what are we keeping alive? That is the main question. Mm-hmm. And why? Are we keeping alive... Three times a week, psychoanalysis. Are we keeping alive a psychoanalysis uh, where you never talk? Are we keeping alive psychoanalysis, relational psychoanalysis? Are we keeping alive uh, object relation psychoanalysis? Are we keeping alive ego psychology, etc.? Mm. And so let's start about why. And we can melt it with what. Why would we want to keep psychoanalysis alive? Oh, wait, wait, I have an answer. I have an answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I want to go back to the what for a moment. Yeah, but you, after an you answer why, this. Why? It's because that's how we make a living. We have to clear that. Is that the only way you can... Is, otherwise, it's hypocritical. The, the, the <laughs> <laughs> People are going to be like, oh, of course they want to keep it up because they make money out of it. Yes, they are millionaires. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. Yeah, or not. Or not. Maybe but we're uh, not. No. Yeah. A patient once asked me that, why am I do what I do? Okay. The why question. And it was a threefold answer, of course, mm-hmm. because it has to be three points. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's an, okay. It uh, has to be. It has to be <laughs> three points. Um, <laughs> because I earn a living. And the patient said, there has to be something more. I think you care. Of course, the patient was asking if I care about him. Most likely. Most likely. I mean, otherwise, it's getting dangerous to be Mm -hmm. talking so intimately about your life and your experiences Mm -hmm. and think that the person actually is just there for the money. Mm -hmm. So I said, yeah, I do care. And the patient said, well, but I care about my plants. About, About what? His plants. His plants? Yeah. He waters them. He cares. He takes care of them. So I said, yes, I care about you, I care about my patients, and I find purpose in what I'm doing. So this is about me as well. <laughs> yeah. So that was my threefold answer to the why I do it. Money. Money. Care for the patient. Care and mm. purpose in life, which is my narcissistic needs, of course. It is part of it, but you could have deployed your narcissistic needs in a different profession. Certainly. Because we tend sometimes to disqualify what we do uh, when we use the concept that it answers some narcissistic needs. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, from what we understand, we can't really escape the fact that there is part of what drives us that's narcissistic. Mm-hmm. But then the question is still, what is the object that we are investing? Correct. And not everybody invests the same object. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I'm happy that a surgeon became a surgeon instead of being a, someone who butchers people in the streets. Mm-hmm. You know, So he has a narcissistic pleasure to cut people open, to uh, investigate in their organs. It's a compromise. 
Soberly determined, yeah. You know. And so there is the question of narcissism. Yeah, it, usually we appreciate what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, psychoanalysis is not a work that you do usually under constraint. We tend to be our own bosses. And we tend to want to do it. Yes. Like it's not like, oh, there's nothing I can do. Okay, I'm going to be a psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. I think it's overly determined. I think we also become psychoanalysts because we have experience analysis and we also continue to self-reflect what we are with our patients. There might be something there about our own growth. So you wanted to address that in regard to the what? Going to the question, what are we keeping alive? I've been pondering, do we want to keep alive the profession or do we want to keep alive the movement? the underlying f- forces that give shape to psychoanalysis. Th- so do we want to be part of an institute, an organization, a field, or do we want to make the experience of psychoanalysis, that's what I would call the movement, mm-hmm. we want to make it available to more people. So what do we want to keep alive? Okay. And I think there might be a tension, of course, that because many of us are connected to institutes and to organizations and we become members and we also practice with our patients. So I want to say that, as you say, most likely from my understanding and my experience, psychoanalysis really does need a clinical practice branch. Mm -hmm. It needs probably an educational branch and it needs, which doesn't exist much if at all in the US a social branch mm-hmm. not social psychoanalysis which we don't know if it exists but like a new intellectual branch no no a psychoanalysis applied to environments mm-hmm. psychoanalysis that you apply outside of a clinical practice either through treatment or through a way to understand the world Which means then that if we're going to do what you're saying, then the focus of the work cannot be exclusively the intrapsychic conflict. Yes. Because otherwise that remains within the confines of the therapeutic room. Within the room, the external comes. I agree with you. You can't just be like, you're fired because you're conflicted. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're fired because your boss is a jerk or because the company decided to need more money. Mm-hmm. You know, your internal conflict have nothing to do with it. And sometimes they do. I think it's happening less and less. But there are some people who are trained classically who cannot entertain the possibility that the external reality is, in fact, spilling into the room. I think you mentioned once the person who says, oh, the subway is full of germs. Oh, yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. Before COVID. Before <laughs> COVID. <laughs> I was, so I was it, right. It, 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 you were absolutely right. <laughs> dangerous germs. <laughs> Terrible viruses. germs. <laughs> viruses and all of that. So it, if an analyst is looking only at that from a, you know, these are paranoid ideations, there is a reality spilling into the room. That's what I mean. It, 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 you cannot be that rigid. Yeah. If we are going to entertain the idea of what you're talking about, the social dimensions, then 
we need to shift and play with this dynamic experience of the inter and intra psyche. Okay. What I meant by social in this case was more a study of social phenomenon through a psychoanalytic lens. Yes. Which is a tricky exercise because mm-hmm. it's very easy to draw on conclu- conclusions without any real clinical material. Mm-hmm. But from my training in France, I experienced, I witnessed that there are ways to offer a r- psychoanalytic reading, for instance, of religions. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is very important. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to try to understand groups, to understand why are people, most people, so inactive regarding climate change mm-hmm. or climate crisis. Mm-hmm. And not in a sense of blaming. Because if you only rely on sociology, if you only rely on an economic reading, you are missing mm-hmm. some aspect of what it means to be a human that I believe only psychoanalysis offers. I've said it before in the podcast. Sometimes I do listen to political podcasts and I'm so frustrated that they don't have a sense of ambivalence, projections, conflict, identification mm-hmm. to leaders, etc. Mm-hmm. And so their analysis might be very interesting and then they hit a rock mm-hmm. because the behavior of people makes no rational sense to them. They are not looking at the unconscious dynamics or potential, at least. Yes, potential, potential unconscious dynamics. I'm generalizing here, but I have noticed that some people who begin to try to make those connections mm-hmm. then distance themselves from psychoanalysis, the clinical practice, I mean. Are dis- do they distance themselves or are they being kicked out? I don't know. Maybe it's both they kick themselves out and the institution as an entity kick the them dynamic. out. <laughs> the, the group dynamic. It's true in America, yeah. I think in France, from my experience, it's not. It's different? Yeah, yeah. Because mm. we have psychoanalysis. Yeah, we study religion. We study what's happening at work. We study uh, uh, the violence in the suburbs, the uh, violence among rich people, etc. But in America, I can see that. And that is the question, is what are we defending and what do we want to keep alive? The famous statement, oh, that's not psychoanalysis. Yeah. Do we want to keep that alive? The state, the famous, this is not psychoanalysis. Oh, no, no. What, what I'm saying, that's an aggression. So if you are going to analyze this statement, I think that is an aggressive. Well, sometimes it might be a true statement, though. Well, of course, everything depends on the context. Yeah, yeah. No, we <laughs> want to make sure. <laughs> I'm being annoying in that sense. Yes. Because I feel like, yeah, I know. But I feel like the social discourse is maybe mechanically very concrete. And what we say that mm-hmm. then moves to the social realm becomes concretized. I guess that's where my intervention came from. That if we say the comment this is not psychoanalysis is bad, then it might be very easy for some people without any malice to hear what they mean is that every time someone says it's not psychoanalysis, it's bad. Then psychoanalysis becomes everything that is claimed to be psychoanalysis. I don't think the statement is bad. I think it needs to be expanded. And explain what do you mean? Usually... The statement is made about psychoanalysis technique. Well, if the person is not lying down, that's not psychoanalysis. I don't think many psychoanalysts are saying that nowadays.
Yeah, but let's say... What would we say psychoanalysis then? I think psychoanalysis is a way to gather knowledge about how we as human beings interact internally with ourselves and, and externally with others. And that we acknowledge the ambiguity of our behavior, for example, that there are many forces at play and that we are consciously aware of some and not aware of others. And the analysis allows us to have a larger picture of who we are as human beings. So if it has those features, I think it falls under the category of analysis. So psychoanalysis as a practice is mostly a state of mind. What do you mean by state of mind? It doesn't res resonate with... With what you said? No. Is that it's about the way we listen. It's about the listening to the conflict, listening to the unconscious. That's what I would call a state of mind in the sense that we are available to be moved, to be by what is unspoken, what is mm -hmm. unspeakable. And we have then a way to read it, which we use, which is conflict, unconscious, fantasies, etc. I think the challenge with the phrase state of mind is that, in my mind, it remains static. And I think part of the analytic process is that it leads to internal change because we are able to see how the different objects we have internalized are at play. Okay, so a state us. of mind to me is the curiosity. To me, that's a state of mind, to be curious. Be curious about the inner world and how that inner world impacts the external world, meaning the relational world. But then we can come to a point and we say, somebody could say, well, you two are very nice, very polite, very agreeable, but self-psychoanalysis is the true psychoanalysis. Everything else completely missed the point. And you can change self-psychoanalysis by whichever you want. Whatever you want, yeah. Relational or, you know, with ego, Lacanians, yes, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And you can say what to that? What would I say to yeah. that? BS. Bullshit. <laughs> 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 and that's it for today. <laughs> <laughs> that's a strong argument. <laughs> that's a very strong argument. I that's think, I think that's bullshit. Be like, so let's move on. Man, <laughs> I didn't lose my time <laughs> listening to those two. <laughs> to begin to unpack the bullshit thing. Why do we choose a very specific theoretical frame, psychoanalytic theoretical frame? It's a compromise as well. It's, multi it's overly determined, and it's connected with our own <laughs> internal structure. Yeah. So someone else who has a completely different psychosexual development, history, personal dynamics will probably choose a different theoretical frame. So that does not make one the right one and the other the wrong one okay but aren't we a bit hypocritical if we say that and on the other side we say you'd still need conflict you still need the unconscious you still need fantasies etc 
And the drives. Don't forget the drives. And the drives. <laughs> okay, the drive. We need to drive. That, let me add that. That's for you, self psychology. <laughs> boom. And relational. Boom, boom. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> to all our friends there. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and here we are. You go to self-psychology, you go to relational, this is a drive. Who cares about the drive? Not drive. If you go to ego, you mm-hmm. talk about conflict, they're like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. There are places, there are psychical places with no conflict. With no conflict. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's hi- hypocritical? It's not hypocritical if we say, according to my own experience and the type of patients I work with, what seems to be more aligned with the work I do is... Lacanians or contemporary Freudians or eagle. That's not hypocritical. There's a contradiction, in, at least, no? Are we talking about ambiguity? Maybe. Let me reframe what we are saying from a different perspective. Someone who says, I have a toolbox of theories and technique, and depending on the patient that comes, shows up in the office, I will choose from that toolbox. I find that very difficult to understand in in the practice because I internally, there are things that don't align with me that I have not experienced in my own analysis, let's say, and therefore to use them as tools sounds to me like that would be hypocritical when I haven't experienced something and I try to get out of my own experience, life experience, own my personal analysis, the academic preparation I got from the training institute. You think that people say that they use different tools are hypocritical? No, I would say that I am hypocritical. I would be the one. But you feel like you're always using exactly the same technique with every No, I am not. So I think that's what people mean. Can I work with every patient? I realize that there are some patients I cannot help. Oh, yeah. So what is this idea that, okay, let me go go into my toolbox and bring something that will work with this patient? There is a limit to it. Yeah, there's a limit, but you can try. Of course, we can try until we die. And... (laughs) (laughs) And Isn't that what we do? dramatic? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't... A more, perhaps a humble experience to say, I cannot help some patients because I don't seem to grasp what they need. I completely agree with that, but I don't agree with the fact that people who say, I mean, that's never how I heard it, that people who say, I just use different tools mean that they can work with everybody. Yeah, but I've heard that. That I can work with anybody. Oh, that's BS. And, that's and, impossible. And then I would say something like, I think what you are saying is that you are anxious about not having enough patience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 rusted. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't see that coming. <laughs> it didn't go well. <laughs> no so, so if I prepare myself, if I go to supervision with different types of supervisors, if I take different classes, if I, all of that helps me prepare for a different type of population, right? But if what is the driving force is my anxiety that I won't have enough money because I don't have 60 patients, 
then well uh, you shouldn't to, have to, 60 patients you should not have question. 60 patients but anyhow uh <laughs> for all our friends who have 60 patients <laughs> we think you shouldn't <laughs> so that's a different driving force it's your anxiety and i think it would be a disservice to someone to a patient i don't know which patient but to say that you can help everybody i have to say from my experience I'm very bad with people who express... In general? People in general? I'm... <laughs> oh. It's not nice. Uh. It's not untrue. <laughs> but it's very hard for me to work with paranoid patients or paranoiac mm -hmm. patients. Uh, I don't know if in English you guys make the distinction because in France, oh. paranoid is a feature of schizophrenia. Oh, I see. And paranoia is a complete different organization mm. because in paranoia you have this pathological inflation of the ego mm -hmm. while in schizophrenia you have a, a split of a the split. ego uh, but within the split of the ego you can still feel paranoid meaning have some features of paranoia but your main organization is different and you mm. work with them differently i'm pointing out that difference because I can work with schizophrenic people who have paranoid features. features. I was never able to work correctly with people with paranoia. I just can't. I tried a few times, and every time I only created more anxiety on those patients. Mm. I mm -hmm. just can't find the groove. I know some people do. Mm -hmm. I experienced that I couldn't. In my case, I think... People who are extremely depressed, it's difficult to work with them. It seems that I cannot reach them. Depressive states, you know, some you know, people having the blues, things like that, it's, I can work with that. But someone who is almost nonverbal because they are terribly depressed, it's very difficult for me to reach. The groove, I mean the groove, the... That's how I experience my work. Like you enter the room, the patient enters the room, and like you can feel there's a sense of rhythm that you have to mm -hmm. have. It might just be the way you breathe, the silence, mm -hmm. the way you intervene, etc., and the, mm -hmm. the way you talk, the lexical feel that you use, things like that. You and I acknowledge that we cannot treat everybody. Therefore, that is something that I think we need to keep alive in psychoanalysis. Yeah, castration. We are limited. That there is no cure. That's tough to say, but uh, that there might be psychic change. For every patient who stayed, <laughs> not those who left, who never came back, mm -hmm. it felt like uh, actually a reassuring statement. That there's no cure. That there is no cure, of course. Because yes. it feels like saying there's a cure to some people who actually feel like there is no possibility of cure and that's not why they come. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, so we are on the same ground. Yeah. We are not going to lie to ourselves. And this is the other thing that I think we need to keep it alive in analysis is the seeking the truth. And the truth is we don't cure people. And that's part of the truth, general truth. Mm. How do we tell ourselves the truth in session? I think that's a feature that we must keep alive in an analysis.
I'm going to go back to something more practical, more concrete. But yeah. So what about the three times a week? Do we have, let's use this example, as we uh, hinted for people who um, listen to every aspect of the podcast until the last second, <laughs> I, <laughs> I became a member of NPAP recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, to do that, the last step that I was postponing for years now uh, <laughs> is to... <laughs> well, telling some truth here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> man, I, have, I am alive. <laughs> And my life prevented me from offering anything to NPAP until very recently. So you're supposed to present a psychoanalytic patient. Mm-hmm. I think that's a term used in mm-hmm. the... Um, the guidelines. The guidelines, the, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. So what is a psychoanalytic patient? And so I decided to present a patient who eventually came to three times a week and with whom I decided eventually to uh, move back to once a week. Because as I mentioned in an early podcast, I had a three-time-a-week patient when I was in training. I think there have been some changes to that. I presented a case of a psychoanalytic, it was a psychoanalytic case, but it was once a week. And now the person who was hosting the forum said, you see, this is psychoanalysis because you were talking about defenses and resistance and unconscious conflict and all of that. So, again, her definition is that it requires the analysis of defenses and resistance and conflict. Can I finish my story? No, of <laughs> course you cannot. <laughs> yes, okay, that's a good point even if it leads to other questions. But then I decided to, and I remember, so just to finish, as I was a candidate, I realized that this patient actually coming three times a week was way too difficult. And this patient was not paranoiac, but there was some strong persecutory feelings. And mm. actually, it was a very bad idea to be lying on the couch. Yes, uh, correct. The person that, actually that would make needed sense. to see me. And I understood that way too late. Mm. In any case, I decided to present a case that uh, reduced, uh, that moved from three to one and still presented a psychoanalytic case. Indeed, because in my belief, there are different aspects to a psychoanalysis. And you can't limit the qualification of a treatment to psychoanalysis to the frequency. It's about how you listen to the patient. Of course, Mm -hmm. I would say that in general, not systematically, but in general, the more frequently a patient is able to come, the deeper you can help them. Mm-hmm. The deeper they can analyze analyze themselves. And in some ways, the easier it is for everybody because things are uh, worked on, worked through more frequently. But at once a week, you can still do a psychoanalytic work. Again, is it going to be at the same depth uh, three times a week? Not necessarily. But is psychoanalysis just about a percentage of depth? Or is it a movement? To the question of a movement. To me, it's a movement. And I think we should keep a life psychoanalysis as a movement, as a curiosity, as and as a specific way to take care of people. Mm-hmm. That's the why and what. Mm-hmm. In my journey, at least conscious journey, to become a psychoanalyst, I realized, as I, I said in a few podcasts, that 
helping people by giving guidance, by being there to listen to them, was not actually helpful. And when I read Freud and he talked about conflict, he talked about the unconscious. That made sense to you. I was like, wow. Mm -hmm. And what I liked about Freud is that he was pretty clear eventually that this is the best we can do. Mm -hmm. We are not going to be able to do something perfect. Never. It's going to be fucked up mm -hmm. anyway. But we can do better. We can have a better sense of who we are. We int can integrate ourselves better. And I feel like this is something that no other sciences offer. Mm -hmm. And I mean science in, a term, in terms of a state of mind, again. like The curiosity, the interest in learning about oneself. To be able to try, it works, doesn't work. Okay, I'm going to try something else. What happened? You know... To me, psychoanalysis is the natural creation of wondering how to make sense of people's behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it's, it's an empirical science. Well, it's an exploration. It becomes always an exploration, and s people would experiment. Sander Ferenczi would experiment, and that's why he was kicked out of the inner circle. Because one of the things that he would do is that the patient would analyze him, and he experimented with that. Yeah, then he said, yeah, this, work. Is this is not working. <laughs> yeah. well, Who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> well, now we know. <laughs> There's something that you have mentioned about the movement, the curiosity, the interest in getting to know oneself better, what you call the state of mind. But I think in reality, that will be always in tension with the profession as a field. Because institutes and organizations are gatekeepers and therefore they would probably try to suppress those who are exploring in a different way like different frequency uh, not lying on the couch things like that there will be always tension but there is a point in which the tension leads to something that is not psychoanalysis there are some therapy modalities that are not psychoanalysis I agree, but that's my point, that people who consider themselves psycho... Some people who consider themselves psychoanalysts become gatekeepers in the sense that they suppress any exploration from the way they were trained. Why do you think we have to present a final case and they are looking for psychoanalytic cases and three times a week and things like that? It's a gatekeeper. I don't know. I have a sense that the way it's written in uh, NPAP's guidelines is an expression of the conflict that nobody wants to actually settle the score. Mm -hmm. But that leaves candidates in a position of uncertainty because then it's about the jury. The jury will decide mm -hmm. what they consider to be second. My jury was very open. Uh, mm -hmm. We had a very interesting discussion. Mm -hmm. But I heard some stories where people had jury members who were quite stubborn about what they expected. Correct. Correct. And so as long as the institute doesn't say, no, we actually accept openness to that degree, mm -hmm. then we will still have potential difficulties for uh, the exam. My sense is that MPAP is more open than other institutes who tend to be more specific about, let's say, this is a self-psychology institute or this is a relational program. 
that tends to be more. But then you go there because you want to be trained in just one aspect of exactly. it. Exactly. So I think the advantage of MPAP has been that we were trained in different branches of psychoanalysis. I still think it would be nice if the guidelines were a bit clearer. Mm-hmm. I mean, my sense for the exam is that it should move more clearly to a written exam with a final oral presentation. Presentation. Because mm-hmm. I think we would really benefit from leaving a year or two for a candidate to prepare a real s- theoretical reflection on a patient mm-hmm. and then present it instead of cram everything into 30, 35 minutes. minutes. You know, years of analysis of a patient to the work with the patient in 35 minutes that's but that's that's a different that's question. a different story <laughs> so we talked about three times a week as somewhat the upper limit but we remember that Freud was seeing his patients three times a week I think I remember that he even there's an article in which he complains about the crusts that is left after the mm-hmm. one day break. Yes, the Monday crust. Monday? Yeah. I think it was Monday. Well, it doesn't matter, but it yeah. was a crust. <laughs> <laughs> and still today, um, we know that certain institutes consider that four times a week is the only way to really practice psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, as we're discussing at want to raise this question. Does the frequency change the nature of the work we do? Is there something happening at, let's say, four times a week that does not happen at three times a week? What's your thinking? I think we would both agree that it's not the nature of the work that changes. It's the potential of deepening the exploration And when I say the deepening, I'm talking about the transference. And I'm talking about the potential for the neurotic transference to unfold in the room. It seems that the higher the frequency, that tends to happen. Well, if we are once a week, of course, the transference is there. But I don't think we can see so clearly the neurotic transference and the That's my take. We could hear your answer as, yes, it does change the nature. The nature is the same. We are always doing the exploration in the transfer. Well, depends on how you define psychoanalysis. Okay, so that's <laughs> a deep, that's a wider question. Are we doing the same work? If we're talking about the nature of the relationship between the analyst and the analysand, it's the same work. It's the nature of the relationship plus the potential exploration of intrapsychic conflict. One could say that if this exploration is of a lesser degree, then we're not doing the same job. I think we're doing the same job. In what ways that might go deeper or create a better understanding of the inner world of the patient, that's a different story, but we're doing the same job. But you could say, well, if someone comes four times a week, we are able to access deeper part of the psyche and that is by accessing those part of the psyche that mm-hmm. we are actually doing psychoanalysis okay so let's do seven times a week and <laughs> <laughs> man you're intense 
there is always a limit to what we can do in any field. You know, we, we're talking here about the acknowledgement that what we can do is always limited. To your point of the phrase that you use, I think is appropriate. What is the upper limit? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If I understand, your idea could be explained as you can build a house with poor material. It's still a house. You are so negative. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the answer is yes. Of course, it's a house, <laughs> but that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, but that the question of frequency then could be perceived as: if you don't have enough, can you actually work on what you're supposed to work? And then some people might say: then, if you don't have four times, five times a week, what you're doing is just play around. I disagree. I'm not playing around with a person who is doing once a week, but I acknowledge that person who is doing once a week will come to the room and be distracted by all the events that happen during the week. And we will talk about that and the attention to the inner world or even the relationship with me will be in the background. Okay. You know what? We are going to a place I think we didn't explore is that it also depends on the patient. Oh, well, certainly, you know. My experience is that most patients who come at such a high frequency actually have a very hard time looking within themselves. They yes. come frequency because they need the containment. That could be the case. A patient who comes once a week, probably patient A, might experience a lot of insight and have the possibility of looking at life from a different perspective. Patient who is here five times a week, maybe is just, you know, enjoying being on the couch. Yeah. Which is very comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> but you can uh, take a nap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's an expensive nap. It's a very expensive nap. <laughs> of course, I'm exaggerating here with the one uh, and the five. For, yeah, we know. Of but course. It's, good, yeah. It's, it's important to mm -hmm. mention that to all our listeners would be very concrete, way too concrete. But we still love you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> But So there's a question of how much material is available to the analyst. And you see, that to me also raises the question, which we didn't address so far, of how we practice, mm -hmm. meaning in person or not. And... I have to say that the, what's often missing from those dis the discussion of is it psychoanalysis, is it not, is who's speaking. Is it psychoanalysis to the patient or is it psychoanalysis to the analyst? Because my sense is that as a patient and as an analyst, we do not experience the frame and the modification of the frame similarly. No. We don't. My experience is that it is much harder for me as an analyst to work with a video or phone. Yeah. But as a patient, it doesn't change that much. It seems that it doesn't change that much. Yeah. And my push for patients to be in the room, I think it's more about me. Well, it's easier. Well, I agree. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's easier to focus. Yeah. It's easier to... Mm -hmm be fed by what the patient is saying, to associate with the patient. Yeah. To connect with someone remotely, it's much harder. Different and I find much harder. 
I think it's harder, but I have found that, you know, compared to three years ago when the pandemic began and we were trying to do this online, it was very difficult for me. In my particular case, I thought the sessions were three hours long each. I was in this space where time stopped. Nowadays, it's easier. But still, I have this preference and I tell the patients that I have a preference for them to be in the room. Do they pay attention to me? Well, some some of them don't. <laughs> <laughs> Screw them. It's incredible. Some, um, some of them don't, don't live in the city anymore. So, oh, that's even worse. Yes, <laughs> traitors. Yeah. So, has the work changed? I think the frame has changed, but the work for at least for me continues to be, to be the same. The nature of the work, T- trying to explore the relationship with the patient, the, the patient with me understanding where conflict arises through the cracks of the, uh, you know, the sleeps that happen in the free association. That continues to be the same once a week or three times a week. I'm not doing more than three times a week. Yeah, uh, me neither. I don't yeah. have anybody. I think that comes from our training as we were Probably. talking. Yeah, we were trained at I mean, three times a week. Expense. Well, it's not, yeah, we're not, we're not charging $5 a session. It's not like that. Even if you can decrease. We both have sliding scales, but there is a limit. <laughs> Again, the limit. You yeah. Know. And before we end this discussion, I would like to go back to the question of this is not psychoanalysis. I don't think we sufficiently address the tension between the this is not psychoanalysis as a way to exclude new ideas, so as a defense. And the this is not psychoanalysis because it is not psychoanalysis anymore. It's a different type of therapy, the guy, let's say. What does it mean not to be psychoanalysis? Why do we have to put it in the negative? Because I find that to know what psychoanalysis is not is very difficult. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if maybe it could be easier to know what is not. Okay. I'm thinking Lacan in France built a lot of his success on ego psychology mm-hmm. because a lot of people felt that ego psychology betrayed Freud's ideas. Uh huh. It was too scientific. It pretended that uh, some spaces had no conflict. Mm-hmm. Correct. Or, for example, a, a lot of emphasis on adaptation. Yeah. Which is compliance with society. Yeah. And identification to the analyst as a mm-hmm. um, perfect ego or mm-hmm. something like that. So, is it psychoanalysis? Today we have also relational, mm-hmm. who don't think in terms of drive. No. I mean, self psychologists already mm. uh, left that post, yeah. but I find that there's still some hyper. Yeah, it's some, a bit some unclear. Yeah, some self psychologists would still bring change the drive. Or yeah. they change the name, but the, the name, idea yeah, is the still there. Yeah. There's something pushing. Yeah. It's not a drive. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so what do we do? Like, wh- mm-hmm. is. Yeah, if we define what is psychoanalysis, in some ways, self-psychology is not psychoanalysis. If you define psychoanalysis as what Freud said it should be, mm-hmm. is object relations still psychoanalysis? In some ways, it's not. We need to be careful because Freud was the father. He was the creator. Well, let's say the symbolic father and we want to kill him or uh, whatever. Uh, 
<laughs> money. Uh, I, st- I wish you were still alive. I, w- I would say that we need to be careful because if we read Freud, we find the ground of the object's relations there. And we find also his ambiguity about the three essays, for example, this ambiguity about are we driven or are we object relational driven? So Freud is ambiguous there, I think. But he died, therefore. (laughs) Did he? Oh, yeah. No, you didn't get the news. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I haven't seen it, so maybe it's fake news. (laughs) so, So I think... People after Freud tried to follow on his steps. That also implies distancing from Freud. Psychoanalysis is not that we follow Freud. Oh my goodness, what I just said. Yeah, I, know. Know. <laughs> I, I think we I, just I, lost my, a few my membership card will be <laughs> taken away. <laughs> also, actually, I think it's over. Bye bye. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> Okay, that's why, in some ways, I thought that trying to understand what is not psychoanalysis was mm-hmm. easier. Because, indeed, object relation seems psychoanalysis, even mm-hmm. if it's not written by Freud. And mm-hmm. you're right, I think now that uh, object relation exists, it's very easy to read some Freud's article and be like, hey, look, it's right there. It's right there. Yeah. yeah. The drive, yeah. The drive has a goal. Mm-hmm. And the goal is the object. The ah, o- exactly. <laughs> so the finding of the object yeah. is refining. So the you're, you're going to have the object. Yes. Okay. Uh, anyway, so we can say relational is still psychoanalysis in some ways. Uh, object relations is still psychoanalysis in some ways, etc. Then there are ways to practice that might be less rigorous. Mm-hmm. So when do we reach the point where actually it's not defensive to say this is not psychoanalysis? Well, if we're in an institute, usually it's offensive when someone says this is not psychoanalysis. We heard some conferences where I deeply you thought said that this, not this psych- is not psychoanalysis. psychoanalysis. It's just <laughs> poorly made sociology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know how to answer the question. It's like time. You know what it is, but it's very hard to define. <laughs> <laughs> what if we... Instead of trying to define psychoanalysis, we try to point out what is the horizon of our therapeutic process. Does that make sense? Okay, okay, go ahead. What is the horizon of a treatment that is done by a psychoanalyst who is into objects relations? So what would be the horizon in the mind of that psychoanalyst? What is that psychoanalyst listening to in the clinical material? What is the uh, psychoanalyst who says, I am an ego psychologist? What is that person listening to? Then what is the horizon of that treatment? Adaptation, maybe? Um, maybe I'm oversimplifying ego? Oh, you know what? What? It makes me think about something. Go ahead. It's also about the clinician's point of view. Yes, and our own biases and defenses and... All of that is a part of, part of the mix, I think. Now, when you say point of view, what comes to your mind? It makes me think that when I was in France, I used to work so in a facility with adults with mental and physical disabilities. And I was the psychologist of the facility. And 
they were somewhat social worker. We call them educator, but they're not teachers. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's like on the ground uh, social worker, and none of them had been trained in psychoanalysis. Um, uh-huh. Part of my work was to train them, okay. based on the everyday practice that we had there. And some of them had what I would call the psychoanalytic thinking, mm-hmm. an attention to some details, the hypothesis that there was something unconscious going yeah. on that we don't always have control, that uh, the symptoms are multi-determined, things Mm -hmm. like that, and that they had a space for what could be symbolic. Yes. And some were very concrete. What can I do? Oh, this person, he pooped in in his underwear, so maybe we should teach him that pooping in his underwear is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Correct. Mm-hmm. Is it bad? I don't know. <laughs> we could maybe address which probably this person already knows that it's uncomfortable. But is it uncomfortable? Maybe to this person it's not so uncomfortable. No, it might be very sometime. pleasurable. Maybe it also is a reaction to some words that can't be expressed, archaic communication. But those members of the team could not really understand that. I mean, I could see that I was speaking gibberish. Mm-hmm. And I was actually, I could feel that I was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That it was a sign of weakness mm-hmm. from me to be like, it's not necessarily a good thing to yell at them because maybe this is not about just learning a behavior. Mm, correct, yeah. And I think that might be really what distinguishes us from us being psychoanalysts and listening to psychoanalysts. Do we keep in mind the dimension of fantasies? And I think as soon as we give up on that, this is not psychoanalysis this, That's anymore. not psychoanalysis. Like you can give up on a few things. Uh, the unconscious. Uh, it's difficult. I mean, the unconscious and fantasies are uh, heavily connected. Right there. They are connected, you know. But even, I'm not a relational, but I've heard some relationals talking about the out of awareness. So they don't say unconscious. If I'm understanding them, the correctly. U word, huh? The U word. U word? Yeah, you know, in the U.S. Uh-huh. I mean, do they do that in Puerto Rico too? What uh, in Spanish? Like, do that? You know, the D word, the V word. Oh, that the, would be. <laughs> yeah. The yes, N yes, word. Yes. The, yeah, you cannot use that word. She's like, everybody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> 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 Either you say it or you just shut the fuck up. <laughs> I just use the F word. <laughs> <laughs> the U word would be the unconscious. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I, so if we take that away from the work we're doing, then that's not psychoanalysis. I think that's something yeah. to that. So, did we finally answer the question? I think we did. <laughs> <laughs> I think this podcast You're so is... You're so, such an optimist. No, I think it's just being uh, clear on what is reality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this podcast is going to Oh, you're classical. Do you occupy the position of reality? Yes, I am. You didn't know that? <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to tell you and all my patients that for years now. 
but they resist. They keep resisting me. Yeah, it's them resisting. <laughs> yeah, not me. Never me. So yeah, look, we did the best we could. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our discussion. This is really a topic in which we would again be very happy to have your input. What is psychoanalysis to you? Maybe what is not? It, you might have very good insight that we didn't have. Absolutely. Feel free to let us know, and we would be very happy to include that in a future podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I promise that next time we are going to try to actually address the question that we were supposed to, which But is uh, how to how keep, to keep psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis alive. Until then, well, bye bye. Bye. <laughs> that was.